You've heard me talk about Morning Kick, used by former karate champion Chuck Norris. It's a daily drink from Roundhouse Provisions that combines ultra-potent greens like spirulina and kale with probiotics, prebiotics, collagen, and even ashwagandha. Just mix with water, stir, and enjoy. Unlike other green drinks out there, this one tastes similar to strawberry lemonade, and I enjoy it. I know I don't eat as many vegetables as I should, but Morning Kick has helped me make up for that, and I feel great. I have more energy and better digestion. It's an easy part of my morning routine. My wife started taking it as well. Go to roundhouseprovisions.com forward slash Harris for up to 44% off your regular priced order. Plus, every purchase is backed by a 90-day money-back guarantee. So if you want to experience smoother digestion, a boost of energy, and just an overall healthier body, then go to roundhouseprovisions.com forward slash Harris today. Hey everyone, we're live now for the lunch break version of Conversations That Matter today. I hope everyone's enjoying their lunch break, or if you're not on a lunch break, I hope you're enjoying uh, your day. Maybe it's a day off, I don't know, but it's always a good day to have a discussion uh, about things that actually truly matter, and this is, of course, the Conversations That Matter podcast. Today, we have a guest with us to talk about some things that truly matter. We have Colonel John Eidsmo with us, and um, he informs me that some of the things on the Wikipedia page about him are true, uh, but no, you're not everything. And he works for the Foundation uh, for Moral Law. And um, Colonel Eidsma, I, I'd be curious if you could just give us a little bit of a background uh, for yourself. What, what kinds of things have you done politically and then also in religion, since we're talking about the intersection of those things? Well, as you said, I'm retired from the Air Force as a judge advocate or lawyer, and then after the Air Force, I served in the Guard as a chaplain. And people always say, that seems like kind of a contradiction. The JAG and chaplain, no law and gospel. We need them both. The law is what convicts people of their sins. The gospel is what shows us the way of salvation. But after five years of active duty with the Air Force, I transferred into reserves and attended seminary. And so I received degrees from both the Lutheran Brethren Seminary and the Dallas Theological Seminary, then went to teach for the law school at Oral Roberts University, teaching constitutional law and the like. And from there to the Thomas Q. Jones School of Law in Montgomery, Alabama. Now with the Oak Brook College of Law in California, Oak Brook was established by Bill Gothard primarily for homeschool students and Today, a lot of our students are homeschooled, but some of them are not. But we are definitely a conservative Christian distance learning law school and excited about the future there. But anyway, right now I'm serving, besides my teaching there, I'm teaching Christian apologetics as well, both with Chafer Theological Seminary and with the Institute of Lutheran Theology, conservative Lutheran group. And... I'm also serving as the senile, I mean, senior counsel with the <laughs> Foundation for Moral Law. Yeah. That's the foundation that former Chief Justice Roy Moore established. And we stand for the rights of religious freedom. We stand for the sanctity of life. And we stand for the traditional family, constitutional issues in general. 
Yeah, well, that, that's wonderful. Thank you for bringing us through all that. You certainly are quite accomplished. I have to ask a quick question before we get started, because I'm just curious, since I'm hearing for this for the first time. So you um, uh, you you taught at, uh, oh, where did you say that? More uh, uh, Out in Oklahoma. Now I'm blanking on the name. Oral at Roberts. the O.W. Hoburn School of Law, which was part of Oral Roberts University. Right, right. So you, you taught at Oral Roberts and, and, and one of the organizations, I guess, that you've done some work for. Um, was Bill Gothard and but you're Lutheran you're Lutheran so that's so am I right on that are you you are correct on that. you are okay all right that's just I I did wasn't expecting those things to come up from a, a Lutheran that's that interesting. you've been pretty, way around explain something there if I may and that's the the association of free Lutheran congregations of which I'm an ordained pastor is a very conservative Lutheran body we were formed in 1960 out of congregations primarily of Norwegian extraction because we would not go along with the merger into the American Lutheran Church, which now has become the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, because we wouldn't go along with their refusal to affirm the inerrancy of the Word of God. Now that we see in the ELCA their endorsement of gay pastors and so on, we say that's just the natural result of not accepting the inerrancy of the word. Once you depart from right. that with your absolute standard, then you can go anywhere. Unlike a lot of Lutheran bodies, we tend to be a little more pietistic. We also tend to be more distinctively evangelical and stress more strongly the need for a revival and a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And unlike most Lutheran bodies, the majority of us are premillennial. Interesting. Okay. So that I have not, uh, I, I, my, my association of Lutherans is like either evangelical Lutheran or Missouri Synod. So you're not in either. And, and it sounds like your group is, is much different than both of those. Well, we'd be more like Missouri than like, than like the, like, like, yeah, but, right. You're not, but, you're, yeah, yeah, you're, 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 you're not denying. If one, of our, if one of our pastors wants to go on for a doctorate, they'll go to one of the Missouri Senate seminaries, but we have our differences there too. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, um, I, I didn't want to uh, go deep into differences in Lutheran theology and denominational stuff with you, um, but thank you for answering that. The reason I not. wanted uh, to have you on is because of your background with, and even in your capacity now, working somewhat in this political sphere, but as someone who um, believes that God's law is, is the final authority, that uh, Christians should appeal self-consciously to that law, and then that uh, I explained to you on the phone, I think, a little bit, and you were already aware that this is somewhat controversial these days in Christian circles. And um, maybe the first uh, question would, would just be an easy one, perhaps, for you. But I'd like to just ask you why you think that is. Why is that so controversial? It's controversial because a lot of people don't like the implications of it. And as far as where the basis for applying God's law is, I just take it right to the Great Commission, where Jesus says at the end of Matthew that we are to go into all the world and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. And that's where most people end the whole thing. But he goes on to say, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever that I have commanded you. And remember, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, the commands of the Old Testament are the commands of Jesus. And so the Old Testament law is relevant today. As to how it's relevant, I would say, first of all, that we would look to the moral principles of the Old Testament law, as Luther did, and say that those are 
as applicable today as they ever were. They will be applicable at all times, at all places. Luther said the Ten Commandments is the most perfect expression of natural law that was ever adopted. And then there are some parts of the Old Testament law, the ceremonial, for example, that will still apply for teaching purposes today, but not as commands that were required to follow. But the principles of the Old Testament formulate the basis for law today, the basis for our legal system. And many simply don't like the implications of those commands. And I think that's one of the reasons that they are pulling away from a lot of this today. If you follow the principles of the biblical law, I think it's going to lead you to two inevitable conclusions. First conclusion is going to be that there is a higher law than the law of man that man's law is subject to and that we are obligated to follow that law. The second, I put it this way, a high view of God and his law and second, a low view of man and his nature that we would recognize that man is, as the Bible describes him, a sinner, separated from God, self-interested, corruptible, not to be trusted. And for that reason, we have strong constitutional limits on government power. We place separation to powers. We limit what government can do. We protect individual rights from government abuse. You might say that the doctrine of total depravity is a great leveler because it means that kings and princes and governors and sheriffs have the same sinful nature as everybody else. And therefore, while we know we need government in order to maintain law and order, we also knew that, know that those who run the government have the same sinful nature as everybody else, and therefore we have to limit their power. And the limits that we placed on government power in the Constitution are the limits that a lot of modern evangelicals today don't want to follow. They talk about liberty. But yeah, they yeah, no, the that's, term liberty. Go ahead. No, that's good. No, that's good. And and, and <laughs> I don't want to interrupt you because you're you're saying so many true and good things. Um, I I want to ask you um, to to maybe drill down even deeper. Uh, even if someone accepts what you just said and says the law of God is the basis, we know that. But what about being self conscious about it as Christians? In other words. Can't we support the law of God in political for the common good of, of, of every denomination and every religion out there, uh, including Hindus and Muslims and Mormons and everyone, um, but and not let them know that it's the Bible that we're appealing to not not do so in a Christian way, but just in a more pragmatic way that, well, these are just good laws for everyone. What, what do you say to that? That is an objection that I've heard. Sometimes that might be appropriate. And now you look, for example, to Muslims, Muslims will accept the Ten Commandments. Hindus and Buddhists may not accept them as being what Moses has originated, but many of those principles they would accept as well. And I think we can make common cause with them, but I don't think we should ever forget or ever deny that the source of American political values really is the Bible and that the biblical values that form this country were brought here by people who were primarily Christians. If somebody wants to put a, say, a plaque honoring the Quran somewhere, frankly, I'm not going to be offended at that. 
However, the Quran and the Bible are not on an equal footing because the Bible influenced American law and government in a way that the Quran never did. You look to the principles of the Ten Commandments, for example, and I remember one time when we had this battle over the Ten Commandments here in Alabama that somebody wrote in and said that I am a Christian, but I believe that the decision whether to obey the Ten Commandments is a decision every person should make for himself. And I thought, do you really believe that? I don't think you thought that through very well. Thou shalt not kill. Everybody should decide for himself whether I'm going to obey the command not to kill people. Thou shalt not steal. That's a matter of individual choice. I should decide that for myself. In other words, look at the principles that we find in Scripture. They're the basis of law. Respect for life. Where do we get respect for life? From the command, thou shalt not kill. Respect for property. Where do we get respect right. for property? From the principle, thou shalt not steal. Respect for family. Where do we get that? From the principle, thou shalt not commit adultery and honor thy father and thy mother. Respect for truth. Where do we get that? From the command, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. And from the command, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, which prohibits not only blasphemy, but also perjury. And finally, respect for God. Because God is the source of all governmental authority. Every one of our colonial charters recognize that. Every one of our state constitutions contains a recognition of God. And God is also the source of limits on governmental authority. You look, for example, at the basis for human rights. Justice William Douglas, in a dissenting opinion, and I believe it was the McGowan case, said that, well, first we said in Zorak that we are a religious people whose institutions presuppose a divine being. And then he said in McGowan, in a dissenting opinion, but I don't think people would disagree with this part of it, that the nation is based on a belief that there is a higher law given by God that conveys human rights that government must respect. He said the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence recognize this. Likewise, in 1983, when Congress passed a resolution making, I believe it was 1984, the year of the Bible, they said in that resolution making it the year of the Bible that whereas biblical concepts have inspired principles of law and government that are found in our Declaration of Independence and our Constitution. In other words, Congress has recognized that our laws are inspired by the Bible. And all law ultimately is based upon morality. And all morality ultimately is based upon religion, whatever religion that might be, even if it's atheism. And so it's not a question whether you're going to legislate morality. It's a question of what morality you're going to legislate. And that's such a good point, because um, what you just articulated is that even in a, uh, a multicultural setting, which is where a lot of us find ourselves, God's law is good for everyone. And uh, it's good for the Muslim. It's good for the atheist. Um, you you did say that you think there are circumstances in which uh, you you don't have to acknowledge that it's from the Bible you're working off of in a political setting. But let me ask you this. Is that ideal, though? It, it would, would not the ideal thing be to work towards being able to publicly recognize, as you just gave the example, things like the Ten Commandments and where they derive from in public settings with monuments and uh, and displays. What, what do you think of the, these 
public religious Christian expressions? Well, sometimes it's a question of how religious those expressions actually are. For example, let's look at the case of American Legion versus American Humanist Association. That was, I believe, 2019. And it involved a 30-plus foot cross that had been erected at a public intersection in Bladensburg, Maryland. And the cross was erected about 1920 to honor World War I veterans from that area who had died. And the American Humanist Association filed a lawsuit to have the cross removed. But American Legion had been taking care of the cross, so they were named as one of the defendants. And we argued in an amicus friend of the court brief to the Supreme Court that the cross should remain. And part of the reason we argued it should remain was that the cross has significance in America that is definitely religious, but goes beyond the religious as well. We noted, for example, that if you go to military cemeteries overseas, you will see crosses all over those cemeteries. If you go to military cemeteries in the United States, you will see crosses in the older portions. In the newer portions, you will see regular shaped graves, but the vast majority of them with crosses on them. You look to in the military, for example, other than the Congressional Medal of Honor, the highest award that can be given is the Distinguished Service Cross for the Army or the Navy Cross or the Air Force Cross for other branches. And you think of Douglas MacArthur's statement in his farewell address at West Point that the soldier recognizes that it's supreme of all virtues, sacrifice, and the cross represents sacrifice. Jesus said that greater love hath no man than he lay down his life for his friends. And recognizing that the cross is a Christian symbol, but it is more than a Christian symbol, we argued that for that reason it should be preserved, that there had been a tradition in America of having crosses in public. Columbus, for example, when he landed in 1492, he planted a cross. The Jamestown settlers planted a cross when they landed. Throughout the West, when the Spanish explorers would come to territory, they would plant a cross. And anyway, the Supreme Court in a 6-3 decision agreed that the, that the cross should remain. And for some of the same reasons we gave in our brief. Yeah. So I, I, I'm trying to uh, fine-tune this just so people understand. Um, the, the argument that you used, it sounds like, was because it was uh, a, a symbol that was understood to have a greater application than just in the Christian religion, so that it, it, it had further symbolism that pertained to uh, we as a, a possessive thing. It, it belongs to us as Americans. Um, I, I, what, what, I, what I'd like to maybe get into is uh, the title of the video. Can, Christ, can governments be Christian, though? Can, can you have a... Um, I, I, for example, uh, the founding of our country, uh, let's say, um, did we have a situation where state governments and maybe even you could argue the general government were in effect Christian in the sense that they were influenced by Christianity, respected Christianity, self-consciously believed Christianity was true? Um, is that something we need to get back to? Is that something that you think ever actually existed? Because that seems to be one of the dividing lines here is is whether or not governments in in effect can actually be christian or function in, in christian ways 
You look to those who came to settle this nation in the 1600s, and first of all, in the Northeast, you have the Puritans, and the Pilgrims were really Puritans with perhaps a little bit kinder and gentle version of Puritanism, but their theology was basically Puritan. You go into the Southern colonies, and they were the Church of England, but even so, many of them were from factions of the Church of England that were sympathetic to Puritanism. And so they established governments based upon God's law. And in fact, in many of the Puritan colonies of New England, their criminal and civil codes were basically just a codification of the book of Deuteronomy. But whether that's to be the model for the nation of a whole is another question. And I'll just give you a statement from Luther here, for example, in his letter on secular authority, to the extent it should be obeyed, a letter from 1523, where he says, it is out of the question that there should be a common Christian government over the whole world, nay, even over one land or company of people, since the wicked always outnumber the good. Hence, a man who would venture to govern an entire country or the world with the gospel, notice he doesn't say with the law, he says with the gospel, would be like a shepherd who had placed in one fold wolves, lions, eagles, and sheep together and let them freely mingle with one another and say, help yourselves and be good and peaceful among yourselves. The fold is open. There is plenty of food. Have no fear of dogs and cubs. The sheep, forsooth, would keep the peace and would allow themselves to be fed and governed in peace. But they would not live long, nor would any beast keep from molesting another. And so Luther says, there are two kingdoms, church and state. And he says, for this reason, these two kingdoms must be sharply distinguished and both be permitted to remain. The one to produce piety, the other to bring about external peace and prevent either evil deeds. Neither is sufficient in the world without the other. To answer the question, can there be a Christian country? I would be very hesitant to call this nation a Christian country, a Christian nation, or even somewhat hesitant to say we ever were. Some of the colonies might have called themselves that, but as a nation, I would say no. I would prefer to say that we are a nation that is based upon biblical principles and that those principles were brought here to this country by people who were primarily Christians. I think that states it more clearly than just calling us a Christian nation. Right, and, and I know that that is uh, the phrase that tends to, people tend to get hung up on. Um, I, see, I, I've told the podcast listeners this. I've never thought that that was, depending on what you mean by it, of course, it should be that controversial if what you mean by it is the, in the same way we say that's a Christian family or that's a Christian organization or that's a, a Christian business. I'm not saying everyone's a Christian there, but there's a respect for Christ, his commands, that kind of thing. Um, some people do seem to mean more than that, where, where they're, they're saying there is some kind of a chosenness about America, like, like maybe there was for Israel, or there's some kind of, uh, I don't know, um, like everyone here, it, maybe there are people who assume everyone here is a Christian or something because they're American. Um, I, I think less so now. But um, so, so what you're saying, though, is that because, um, well, I'm trying to understand the objection to that. You're, you're, is what you're saying that because uh, we not everyone is saved and um, because God's law is good for everyone, including non-Christians, that you'd be hesitant to say it's a Christian nation or a Christian country or Christian government? My main hesitation in calling this a Christian country 
would be the fact that the term is misunderstood. In fact, sometimes I think it's even being deliberately misunderstood. And okay, so the left uses that, and right. And when I say the left, even some evangelical Christians, I think, are misusing the term, perhaps unintentionally. But when we understand the term Christian country, if we understand it to mean a country that is based upon Christian values, I have no problem with that. But the term can be misunderstood. And so that's why I prefer to I see. say a nation based upon biblical values. So that you, that's a more clear articulation. And I, and I actually like that. I think that's probably more often what I say. We were based on Christian ideas or Christian uh, ideas influenced us. Um, no, that, that's good. What, what about... It's hard to um, say, for example, that Indonesia yeah. is a Muslim nation. Right. Or I would say the same about like Saudi Arabia, which that Islam would be the officially established religion there, although they're not strictly under Sharia law. But other nations like this are... Or Turkey, which is supposedly a secular nation, but if I were to say that Turkey is a Muslim country because it is overwhelmingly Muslim in its population and its values are Muslim, I don't think there's a problem in saying that. Or that India is a Hindu nation, or that Tibet is a Buddhist nation. I don't see a problem with, with saying that so long as we understand what the term actually means. And nobody seems to get that confused, but it right, seems like right. there's an attempt to confuse it when we're talking about America. <laughs> Right. Um, let me ask you about the two kingdoms thing, because uh, you mentioned Luther said that you have the government and you have the church. And I know um, Calvin had his own articulation of two kingdoms, which seemed to be more of like a temporal, uh, spiritual kind of distinction. But that um, but but I but but the government being the one that applies justice in the temporal realm, the church being more of an institution to prepare souls for the eternal realm. And I'm assuming that's what Luther meant. Um, as well by that, so that, that there is a separation there of, of sorts. But what do you say to the, the people who, um, th really, there's two sides, I guess, and there's a ditch on I either side. There are the people that believe in this radical two kingdoms theology where Christians should not even really care about the state all that much. I mean, it's okay to get involved, but it's really not that important because it's just like uh, becoming a plumber or or any other trade. It's It's there's nothing distinctly Christian about passing laws and legislation. So that's one ditch. And then the other uh, ditch, I suppose, would be where the ACLU wants to go, which is, um, well, actually, maybe that's the same ditch. They're similar. The ACLU wants to say, you know, separation of church and state means Christians uh, cannot bring their religion at all into the civil realm. So that re really, that's the same thing. But but it's coming from two different sides. One, one are Christians within the church saying, that the church is really the only important institution uh, th that's guided by biblical law and in, in the in our uh, realm right now in, in in this dispensation or this covenant. And then you have those um, in in the world, the secular world, who just say, "Keep your Bible at home. I don't want to see it." So how, how do you respond to those people? Because they're saying they're appealing to the same thing. They're saying there's a separation there. If that makes I sense. I asking them, where does this idea of separation of church and state come from? And my answer would be, so far as I can tell, the earliest practice of separation of church and state is in Old Testament Israel, where we see the civil authority, the kings, coming out of the tribe of Judah and Israel's religious authority, the priests, coming out of the tribe of Levi. And then we see in the New Testament, where Jesus, in answer to that question, should we pay taxes to Caesar, Pharisees 
just thought they had him with that question because if he answered yes, then his popularity in the next Jerusalem poll is going to be down about 90 points. If he says no, then of course they're going to go tattle to the Romans and either way they're rid of him. But Jesus simply says, show me a coin. Whose image is this? Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. Lord Acton says of that statement that there Jesus recognized and gave to the state the legitimacy and had not before recognized that its authority came from God, but he also placed upon the state a limit that had never before recognized that there was a realm that was beyond its jurisdiction. And throughout, I mean, the two kingdoms concept is not new with Luther and Calvin, but you go into the Middle Ages, for example, and the church regularly taught the two kingdoms concept throughout Europe. The two kingdoms idea was there. They would disagree sometimes as to which kingdom was superior and as to how the two kingdoms were to relate to one another. But until the time of Henry VIII, you don't see kings becoming popes and you don't see popes becoming kings. And anyway, then you have the other extreme, the Anabaptist view, which is not the view of Baptists today, Anabaptists to be more like Mennonite and so on. But the Anabaptist view, which was that the church is the kingdom of God. The state may have been ordained of God, but it was basically under the control of Satan today. And so, well, we should obey the law and we should pay our taxes. Beyond that, we should have as little to do with government as possible. In between that, you have Luther and Calvin who say that church and state, neither is superior to the other. Rather, God has ordained each as a distinct kingdom and each has its own role. And the roles complicated each other. The church is doing its job properly of teaching the word of God. It's going to produce law-abiding citizens who will make it easier for the state to do its job. If the state is preserving law and order, that's going to make it easier for the church to proclaim the gospel. So they complement each other. They're pretty similar, Luther and Calvin. Probably the main difference would be Calvin might emphasize the Old Testament law a little more than Luther would, and Calvin might emphasize the duty of the church or the state to actively promote the church well as luther would just say it protects the church and that would vary among a lot Althusiasts and a number of calvinists would go much further than others in that regard well that no that is fascinating um uh, thank you for sharing that uh so so you think christians should be involved that it's not uh, you obviously disagree with the anabaptists and and you're involved in uh civil affairs what do you say to this objection? And I know I'm giving you a lot of objections. Maybe we'll get off the objections here soon, but I, I have to ask you this question because um, this is a, a recent objection. I mean, it's an old one, but it's come up recently that Christians compromise themselves when they work either cross-denominationally or with, with heretics, okay, with people who don't actually uh, hold the orthodox theology, uh, whether, you know, word of faith people or whatever, um, or, or let's say cults, Mormons, or, or other religions, Muslims, you seem to indicate early on in our conversation that you think that there can be a co-belligerency between Christians and, say, even Muslims on some issues like you know, homosexuality or something, I suppose, uh, being normalized. Um, how do you do that, though, without compromising yourself, right? That, like, you, you want people to know that you're, you don't agree with those theological beliefs, but you want to work together towards ending abortion or something. How does that work? There, I think you have to make a distinction between theological doctrines that, for example, the doctrine of the inerrancy of the word of God, the nature of 
the Trinity, the divine and human natures of Jesus Christ, the substitutionary atonement, salvation by grace through faith, these basic doctrines on the one hand, and the moral issues on the other. And I think that we can make common ground with people who don't share all of our theology. Mormons, for example, who wouldn't share some of our views of the Trinity and so on, but we can make common ground with them on various moral issues. Likewise, with Muslims who would not even recognize Jesus Christ, maybe even Hindus and a few others. And I have no objection to making common ground so long as we are not affirming by this that we accept their views of the fundamental doctrinal issues of the faith. So long as our position on the fundamental issues of the faith is clear and we're not compromising that in any way, I don't think there's any problem with working with people on issues of common morality. I mean, we could say the same thing as far as compromising ourselves. We could say the same thing about being involved in medicine, being involved in business, being involved in just about anything else. I don't want to get involved in medicine because there's too many germs there. Or I don't want to get involved in farming <laughs> because I might get my hands dirty or things like right, this. Right. I yeah. think we can really carry ourselves way too far that way. And just so long as we make those distinctions clear, I don't see it as a problem. Yeah. I had a, a, a classmate in seminary uh, at Masters when I was there who was uh, very adamant that Christians should not be active in the pro-life movement uh, if it meant ever partnering with Catholics. So if there was an event where Catholics were present, you you were not you couldn't show up at that event. Um, if there there was any kind of um, acknowledgement that a Catholic organization was involved at uh, trying to um, you know be involved to stop an, a, abortions from happening at an abortion clinic or something, and, and the thing and, and this is farther than just we were not going to pray with them. We we're not going to. Uh, we're not going to give the impression that we agree with their theology. This was, um, he was appealing to the command to be separate and that uh, partnership of light of, and darkness is, is wrong or the temple of God with foolishness. And so Christians ought not be involved in it. And essentially he took it so far to the extent that you couldn't have any Christian political involvement at all, because as soon as you did uh, and you were in an audience where there are people that didn't hold your theological beliefs then you were compromised. And um, I don't know how many Christians believe this, and maybe you know more than I do, but it, it strikes me as a very impractical way to live your life because there's so many other arenas other than the political arena, like shopping at Lowe's. I went to Lowe's today, and I'm, I'm sure that there were probably people in the aisle with me who didn't <laughs> hold my theological beliefs. Um, so you can do this, I think, in, an, in a way that's not compromising, which, which I appreciate what you said. But I mean, have you run into that kind of thinking before? Well, I had an answer that I was thinking out in my mind, and you basically just gave it for me, or that if you're going to follow oh. that logic to its conclusion, <laughs> okay. you better never leave your house. And, right. But, but, but because you're always going to be. But and you know what Christ said about being in the world, but not of the world. And we've taken that. I think there are several different ways we can take it. We can say, I'm going to be both in the world and of the world. I'm going to be identified so much with the world that, I'll be a testimony out there and so much that you become Saul that is lost at savor. Or you can go to the other side and say, I'm neither in the world nor of the world, in which case you're off by yourself and your Saul hasn't lost its savor, but it's up there in the shelf where it's not really savoring anything. And Christ said, in but not of. And that's the way I think we need to be. We need to be in the world, 
but we need to make sure that the world does not corrupt our values. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. Um, what about the Christian's suspicion of power? I know I, I asked you this, that, that it's wrong to seek power, to do good with power, uh, to implement Christ's laws through the use of government power, um, to recognize God in the civil arena. You And of course, all these things, government uses power. But that Jesus example was to give up power in Philippians 2. And his kingdom is not of this world, right? It's a spiritual kingdom. We already kind of addressed this with the two kingdoms thing, I suppose. But but what about this allergy to power? Uh, what would you say to Christians who are afraid that that compromises them to um, get into those positions? I would say that God has established civil government and that civil government necessarily involves power. As Romans 13 says, that the civil ruler, he bears not the sword in vain, for he is God's minister to execute wrath upon those that do evil. I add to that that Paul is assuming there that the civil ruler is going to be commanding what is right and forbidding what is wrong. He doesn't address what we do when the civil ruler commands what is wrong and forbids what is right. Then we follow the command of Acts 5.29. We ought to obey God rather than men. But yes, I think there definitely needs to be a fear of power, as the Puritans especially express this concern that let all the world fear government power, whether it's even not just government power, but even church power, even church power can be abused. And we all know that we need government even in the church. That's a good point. And a pastor or elder or any other official in a church can certainly abuse power. But that's one of the reasons why when we talk about our constitution here in the United States, it's designed to deal with the situation of how do we have a government that wields power by sinful men among sinful men. I like the way James Madison put it. Remember, Madison had studied the Bible and studied theology under John Witherspoon at Princeton. That's right. Federalist yeah. number 51. He says, what is government? But the greatest of all reflections on human nature. He says, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. But he seems to be implying we're not angels. He says, if angels were to govern men, no control on government would be necessary. If we had a few well-meaning, benevolent philosopher kings, we could just give them absolute power. But he seems to be saying our rulers aren't angels either. So he says, in framing a government, which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. We must first enable the government to control the governed, and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. How do we do that? That's where I think the Constitution gives a very good formula. And I describe the formula of the Constitution as the founding fathers' fivefold formula for freedom. In seminary, your professors would have loved the alliteration, right? <laughs> That's I right. Like yeah. saying that alliteration is almost always absolutely awful. <laughs> almost. But you look at that. Fivefold formula, number one, government of limited power. Government has only the power that we, the people, have delegated to it and no other. The Tenth Amendment establishes that. The power is not delegated to the federal government or restrained, prohibited to the states or reserved to the states respectively or to the people. Number two, we separate powers, separated among federal, state, and local levels, among legislative, executive, and judicial 
branches. We put checks and balances on that power. Congress, for example, passes laws. The president can veto. Congress can override the veto. The court can strike laws down as unconstitutional. But the court, the members of the court are nominated by the president, confirmed by the Senate, and so on. So checks and balances back and forth. Reserved individual rights. The idea that the majority generally runs things, but even the majority does not have absolute power. There are certain rights, like free exercise of religion and free speech, and I'll add another, the right to keep and bear arms, that are reserved to the individual, and even the majority cannot take those rights away. The right to bear arms, for example, Justice Story called that right the outer palladium of our liberty. Palladium meaning, in military terms, the outer wall of protection in a fort. It is the outer wall that protects our rights. Somebody put it this way, that if I had the choice between freedom of speech and the right to own a gun, I'd choose the right to own a gun. And then I can say whatever I want because I have a gun. But right. But yeah. anyway, and finally, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. finally, the final part of the reform responsibility through religion. Framers didn't want a state church, and I certainly don't want President Biden heading the church. But they did recognize <laughs> no, that besides the role religion plays in saving souls for eternity, it also plays the role in producing the kind of moral character that makes responsible government possible. And so religion, and when they use the word religion, they usually used it pretty much interchangeably with Christianity, is necessary for religious liberties, necessary for liberty as a whole. John Adams once said, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. Right. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. So that formula is a means by which power is made, it's made possible to exercise, but it is also limited. So I think Christians are being naive when they say that we are to be allergic to power, we are to abstain from power, but also we need to recognize the dangers of power. That's good. No, that's Our excellent. Does that. Someone in the uh, channel asked a question of you. Um, they said, uh, who, does, who do you believe is the greatest example of a Christian who got involved politically? So I guess... The greatest example of a Christian who got involved politically. Oh, there are so many that I could think of here. One that comes to mind is Wilberforce in, in England, the member of parliament, a leader in parliament who led the drive to eliminate slavery. And slavery is certainly one of the stains on the Western world and one of the stains on Christianity as well. But where else in the world do you see people who are working out of a matter of conscience to eliminate slavery other than among Christians and Jews? In America, one very good example would be Chief Justice John Jay, the first Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, who was also a leader in the American Bible Society and stood for Christian values in government. Patrick Henry, I would say, would be another very good example. Another good one would be Roger Sherman of Connecticut, a member of the Congress who signed the Declaration of Independence, delegate to the Constitutional Convention, and so on but who really is the one who proposed the two houses of Congress. He was an elder in the church pastored by Jonathan Edwards Jr. in Connecticut. But those are just a few that I could name. 
name and there are I noticed you others. you went back pretty far <laughs> to find the names um yeah. is there like one in the, in a recent uh, maybe the last few decades that you can point to that you think is a, a good example of a christian being involved in the civic arena well i'll name one I mean, and frankly this one is going to be controversial among some of our supporters but one man that i think has demonstrated himself to be just a fine biblical christian throughout his life is our former vice president mike pence and oh, I was I was expecting you to say Roy Moore. Okay, so Mike Pence. Well, I can certainly, I can certainly mention Roy Moore too, but <laughs> I'm here at the fourth floor of the Foundation for Moral Law, and most likely Judge Moore is sitting in his office right directly below me right now, and so that's very close to home. But yeah, in fact, I'll I'll look to Roy Moore. I'll talk about about Moore, and as I speak about him, let me go back to a biblical example and apply it, and that is Daniel. Remember, Daniel had been a faithful Jew who was brought to Babylon through three years of indoctrination in the Babylonian public schools and made to be an official in the Babylonian government and proved himself to be loyal to God, but also loyal to Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and then to Darius of the Persians. But remember, when the Persians have taken over and Darius is now the king and there are 70 satraps, that is 70 governors who are over the various provinces of Babylon, that's the Persian method of governing, more decentralized than the Babylonians, and Darius has put three presidents over the 70 governors, and he wants to make Daniel the head of the three presidents, and the others are jealous of him, and they are trying to figure out a way they can get rid of Daniel. So what do they do? First of all, they try to find occasion against him, meaning they're trying to find some way that maybe he's been involved in some scandal, or maybe there's some project he's bungled. They probably checked every expense account that he had ever, ever filed and tried to see where he charged personal expenses to the emperor, probably looked at his long distance phone bill to see if he was using the Persian phone lines to make personal calls and things like this. but. They say, we cannot find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it concerning the laws of his God. What we mean by this is that they couldn't find any project that he had bungled. They couldn't find any scandal he'd be involved in. Daniel had conducted himself with professionalism and integrity, and therefore they had to face the real issue, which was the law of God. The same was true with Judge Moore, that when he was elected justice, uh, chief justice of the Alabama Supreme Court, they would love to have gotten rid of him in some other way by finding some scandal or something, but they couldn't. Now, of course, we have the false charges that were made later, and just as our listeners are aware that Judge Moore has sued in these false charges, and right. a jury has awarded him a verdict of $8.4 million damages for these false charges. He's yet to receive the money, of course, and that's going to take a long time. But point of the matter is they had to deal with him concerning the law of God, the Ten Commandments, because he had conducted himself with professionalism and integrity. There is an example of how we should conduct ourselves in the public mm -hmm. arena. Yeah, oh, that's good. Um, man, we, we are winding down on our time and there's so many more questions Uh Anyone in the chat, if you guys have questions, please let me know. I'll ask one, um, and then maybe this will be the closing one unless we get some more in the chat. 
um, blasphemy laws. Uh, I know during the early stages of, of the development of uh, the country that we live in now, uh, in various local municipalities and states, there were certain restrictions on uh, whether or not one could blaspheme the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, there were also laws restricting, um, I, I guess, when we had photographs, pornographic materials in certain states. And one of the concerns that people have now is that if Christians get a hold of the government, it's going to be a nightmare because they're going to suppress free speech. They're going to implement blasphemy laws. They're going to um, suppress uh, free speech you know, by suppressing pornography and these kinds of things. And, um, and so it's incompatible with the constitution. It's incompatible with uh, civil liberties. I'd be curious to hear your response to that objection, uh, because now Christians are making that objection, which I find interesting. Um, and, and so maybe this is, is a longer answer than you have time for, but if you could even just give us a short place to look, uh, that would be helpful. Looking at blasphemy laws, I would go back to what Luther had to say about blasphemy. Luther was generally one who didn't believe that Christianity could be forced on someone. Compulsory worship, he would say, is not really worship. And you might be able to force somebody to make a profession of salvation, but it is not going to be genuine. He was a believer in the right to criticize government, the right to criticize church officials, and so on. However, he was a strong supporter of laws against blasphemy. The reason, he said, is that blasphemy brings down the wrath of God upon society. And government has a duty to protect people against that which brings down any kind of harm, including the wrath of God. See, Luther had this rather unique belief that God is real. And that his wrath is real. And it's something to be concerned about. It's interesting, we looked at the shutdown that we've had with the covid crisis in 20 and 21 and so on, and closed the closure of churches and so on. We wouldn't have seen that earlier in the years of the American Republic. In fact, in 1849, when we had an epidemic of, if I recall correctly, it was cholera at that time. But at that time, President Zachary Taylor issued an order in which he exhorted, didn't command, but he exhorted that people of all denominations go to their churches and pray that God will relieve us of this plague. The reason is wow. we believe God is real and that God would answer prayers. And I think we have gotten away from that belief today and our attitude on free speech today and free exercise of religion today isn't that God is real, rather that religious beliefs are just something that we have to tolerate in people. And, yeah. But on the other hand, I certainly believe that liberty itself is a gift of God. I looked to the rich young ruler, for example, and when he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions, Jesus could have followed after him and pressured him and maybe even forced him to make a conversion, but he didn't. He let him walk away. I believe in religious liberty, and I think Christians are going to be best served by religious liberty. In fact, Hegel, who I would not call a Christian, but Hegel once made the statement that the spread of freedom in the world has been coterminous with the spread of Christianity. That is, we've seen Christianity spread in the world. We've seen a spread of freedom. And that's the way it has been. 
and, and that is the way it should be. Our yeah. notions of Republican government and so on, these notions come out of a Judeo-Christian context. You don't see them in most other parts of the world. Yeah. Um, all right. So we, since we've been going almost an hour, I'm just going to uh, put in one more question. We have uh, someone in the chat, uh, Charles Stanley, who asks, how does Mr. Eidsmo distinguish his views to that of Abraham Kuyper? And I, I don't know if you're prepared to answer that or not. Do you agree, disagree? Do you differ? I have a great deal of respect for Kuiper. In fact, I I teach for the Handong International Law School in South Korea. That's a Christian law school there. I go there a couple of weeks each year to teach. And they have Kuiper's statement about how every part of the world is mine. You know, Kuiper's statement to that effect, meaning God saying it is mine. Right. I agree with that completely. Where I might disagree with Kuiper would be in the application of Old Testament law. I would say that we apply Old Testament law today more as principle rather than as black letter. But other than that, I think that in today's secular world, Kuiper, Rushduni, other thinkers along these lines are a refreshing alternative to what we're getting today, including in many Christian circles. And I think that Kuiper and Luther would not be that far apart in most respects. Luther would emphasize more the natural law as being God ordained than Kuiper would, but but I don't think you would find them that far apart at all. Yeah, well, that's that's fascinating. Um, I man, I'd love to keep going with you, but we need to land a plane. Maybe we'll have you back on to talk about free speech or something because someone's asking in chat about what is free speech, and, and I know that gets into a lot of stuff. Um, but if if you want to, uh, if you want to find out how to contact you or more about where you work, uh, where can we send them? Best way to contact me or contact the foundation is to go to the website of the Foundation for Moral Law. And I might say that if you have a case involving religious liberty or right to life issues and so on, that's what we do, contact us. Best way to find us is our website. Just Google morallaw.org. Anything close to that, you'll find us. All right. I appreciate it, uh, Colonel Eitzmo. Thank you so much. It's been a joy to be with you, John. Thank you. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.